test, uh, is this volume going to be okay if I, if you can't hear me, just give me the finger. Jack was talking about last night how sometimes, not always, but sometimes these first couple of days of silent, intensive retreat can be a bit unpleasant. Body aches, uh, difficult emotions. I heard somebody talk about it uh, one time that we're living our lives, most of us are living our lives going very fast, uh, well over the speed limit. And then silent retreat is like going 80 miles per hour to zero in a day. You know, it's just this kind of screeching halt from the, uh, screeching halt from the busyness, from the distractions, from the interactions. Sometimes I've actually experienced, in the beginning of my, my meditation retreat practice, I suffered a lot the first couple of days because I was trying really hard to do it right. So if you're suffering a lot, you might be trying really hard to do it right. And then after doing, you know, a handful of retreats, I figured out that it was actually okay to relax a little bit. Maybe I heard, I think Jack probably and, or Wes or somebody always says, it's okay to take a nap, to relax a little bit. If you're tired, take a nap. But I didn't hear that until I'd done like 10 retreats. <laughs> Even though it would probably been said every time, I didn't give myself much permission to be gentle. We come on retreat and we enter into silence, noble silence, non-communication, letting go of all of the ways that we're used to communicating through eye contact, through body language, through verbal, written, text messaging communication. It's like the universal symbol for text messaging with your thumbs. But it becomes pretty clear pretty quickly that although we're not talking to anybody else, it's not actually silent in here. That the talking continues. Have you noticed? Basically, you sit down to meditate, you come on retreat, and you tell your mind, please stop talking. Not now, I'm meditating, and your mind completely disobeys you and keeps commenting on the people around you, on the environment, uh, on the teachers, 
on all of the other people in your life that aren't here? How many long conversations have you had these last couple days? With somebody who's not even here. Sometimes I've had long conversations with people who aren't even alive on my silent retreats. Tonight's topic is right speech. As we unfold throughout this retreat, the Eightfold Path, and uh, some of us will translate, uh, often the traditional translation is right, but it sets up this kind of right and wrong so sometimes we, we might translate it as wise speech or appropriate speech. I like that a lot. Appropriate. Appropriate view. Appropriate speech. Or skillful. All of the Eightfold Path has the single aim of ending unnecessary suffering. Of creating well-being and ease and happiness in our lives. And I'm sure that it's very clear to you how much unnecessary suffering happens around how you talk to yourself. In this case of uh, appropriate or skillful speech, since we're not actually talking to each other, we'll just focus, I'll focus tonight on inner talk, self-talk. As we become mindful and observe our ourselves, our minds, it's clear that we think, you'll see more and more clearly that we think uh, with words and images. That what arises in the mind either tends to either be an image or words. A great part of our task in mindfulness is training the mind to uh, respond wisely to the words and images that arise. I'm thinking of uh, how the Buddha sometimes talked about this process of meditation as uh, taming the monkey mind. So perhaps you've been experiencing some of the monkey mind these first couple of days. And he talked about how the mind left to its own kind of untrained tendency just swings to the future and swings to the past. What he didn't uh, tell us, maybe uh, explicitly, is that uh, it's a talking monkey that we have to tame. It's not just a swinging monkey, but it's a monkey that uh, speaks, and often in your own voice. 
this swinging to the future uh, is often happening in talking, making plans, or the past and in rehashing old resentments or reminiscing. When we begin our practice, our spiritual practice, our, uh, the Eightfold Path, the untrained, undisciplined monkey mind uh, can be so cruel, can be so unwise, unskillful. The way that we talk to ourselves, the way we are it feels like almost constantly comparing ourselves to others. How the monkey mind is critical, is judgmental. As I've been reflecting on this, it feels like actually it's not just one monkey. There's a whole gang of them. There's a whole gang of flying, talking, Wizard of Oz, sort of evil monkeys in my mind. And they have a lot of opinions. They're often manifesting with um, comments that are directly connected to what we talk about as the five hindrances. The five things that make meditation practice and having insight and awakening really difficult. And so the first hindrance, the first flying monkey that attacks, or, or one of them, is craving. And it's the monkey that's always sort of on your shoulder, always telling you, you would be happy if it were just different. I'll be happy if it was less hot. Did that monkey talk to you today? Um... I'd be happy if everybody else would act appropriately. Maybe you were visited by that monkey today. Maybe you had a little conversation. Yeah, you're right. I would be happy. I should have gone to Cloud Mountain. I hate the desert. <laughs> I would be way happier in the rainforest. Or the next hindrance, flying, talking monkey you might have had a conversation with today. The one of aversion and anger. Resentment. Hatred. Sometimes that one just taps us on the shoulder. Not even about what's going on here, but the other p places in my life. People who aren't acting right. People who've been unwise, unskillful, 
who've caused us harm in some way or another, and that monkey that's always there, that monkey of hatred, of anger, of resentment, that's so often there to remind us that part of the mind that says they betrayed you, they abandoned you. They hurt you. Or that uh, part of the conversation that we get into around um, sleepiness or restlessness. Those attacks of... Sometimes we talk about these hindrances and this inner sort of dialogue and relationship that we have with the hindrances as as Mara, Mara being the Buddhist. The Buddhist equivalent to uh, maybe even evil. And that Mara is inside of all of us. Mara. The Mara is kind of like, if, if I could run with this analogy around the... Um, Wizard of Oz and the flying monkeys. Maybe Mara's the witch, the wicked witch of the West. Running shit. The monkeys are doing what Mara bids. And it often comes in these words, images, this dialogue, this... uh, conversation we're having with our sleepiness, with our restlessness, with the craving and the aversion. One of the most difficult inner dialogues of of hindrances that we will at times have on retreat, especially these first couple of days, but just throughout our, our life and our practice, is the experience of doubt And sometimes restlessness or sleepiness doesn't have as much, uh, or sloth doesn't have as much dialogue with it, but doubt is always talk. It's always this internal conversation around self-worth. Am I worthy of this? Doubting our own capacity. That part of our mind that starts attacking us. perhaps even gets into doubting the path itself, this eightfold path. This isn't possible. I once spent uh, several months traveling around Southeast Asia and uh, India and Sri Lanka, fueled by doubt. And the way that it was coming up for me was that every monastery I went to my mind convinced me that there would be a better one next door. This doubt, like I'm not in the right place. I'm not on the right path. I'm not in the right tradition or even within Theravadan, uh, rather than the Thai forest of the Northeast, maybe I should go to the South. I sh- instead of Ajahn Chah's lineage, I need to go check out uh, Buddha Dasa. And then from Buddha Dasa, maybe this whole kind of Thai uh, thing is the problem. I should go find some Westerners. I'll go find uh, uh, the Wisemans on the island. 
And then from there, uh, you know, this whole Thai tradition's a little too relaxed. I better go to Burma. And this kind of attack of the hindrance of craving and doubt and not, and not having confidence in just like settling into a practice and a place. And my mind convincing me over and over that I wasn't doing the right thing. I'll be happier when I'm in Sri Lanka. I'll be happier when I'm in India. Maybe, maybe I should study Tibetan Buddhism. They eat dinner. <laughs> this Theravadan stuff. Perhaps you've had some some of these conversations with yourself today. If there's this whole gang of monkeys speaking to us, uh, my experience is that before practice and even in early practice, the untrained mind, um, I'm not sure, I don't know, know much about uh, uh, monkeys, but I'm running with the analogy. But I'm, I'm just, I have this image of this sort of pack, uh, and I don't know if they're even pack animals, but I think they are, I, I just imagine them as this sort of gang and that maybe there's some sort of like the strong one uh, is kind of, what's the strongest voice? Who's actually running the gang? And I know for me, uh, it was greed and hatred and delusion running the gang and speaking to me constantly. It was the hindrances, it was Mara as I took the seat. Mindfulness shows us what's happening. It shows us what's happening in the mind, how we're talking to ourselves. But by itself, it doesn't immediately change that inner dialogue. And I know that for uh, some of the ways that I created extra suffering for myself was through uh, judging my mind and the way that my mind was speaking and by trying to force it to stop by saying shut up not gentleness not uh, loving kindness it actually took me quite a while to come to practice loving kindness I said the other night in the opening how I had immediate and many of you probably the same experience immediate uh, relief from bringing the attention into the body and out of the mind. What a refuge to not be with this mind, to just be with the breath, to be free from the judgments and the resentments and the cravings and the fears. Mm. 
But it also became clear that I could only do it for like a one breath at a time. And that in between mindful breaths, I had to listen to my thoughts. As uh, mindfulness helps a lot to uh, listen to the dialogue, to stop taking it so personal, to stop getting so hooked and involved in that inner talk. To me, in so many ways, it feels like as we pay attention, attention to our breath, it becomes obvious that um, breathing is happening without you. Your body breathes all by itself. You, know, you notice that? Even if you're sort of in the habit of controlling your breath, you just like try to hold your breath for a minute, see what happens. Even if you pass out, your body will still breathe without you. Your heart beats without you. You don't have to tell your lungs to breathe. You don't have to tell your heart to beat. They're, uh, I think, uh, is it auto autonomic or automatic, autonomic uh, muscles? Uh, and as it turns out, so is your brain. It thinks without you. You could tell your heart to stop and it would say, yeah, right. You tell your mind to stop. It says, yeah, right. Tell your lungs to stop. Good luck. The mind doesn't stop just because we tell it to. And our whole meditative practice is about changing our relationship to the mind and not just turning it off or, or even ignoring it all of the time. But mindfulness does wonders to help us take the mind less and less personal. And these automatic thoughts, these, uh, as it turns out, there is volitional and non-volitional thought. There are the thoughts that arise all by themselves, out of nowhere. And then there are the thoughts that we get involved in and we are indulging in and we are feeding and we are thinking. There are the conversations, the words that arise in your mind, this inner talk that is not your fault that is just happening because that's what the mind does. I was thinking about like um, ticker tapes. Like I was thinking about Times Square where there's always that sort of news feed or now like just turn on the television, the news channel, and it's like there's enough going on on the TV itself, but then at the bottom there's all this information going too, these other stories thinking about my mind is a bit like that where there's this sort of constant ticker tape parade commenting judging reminding me and it almost feels like it's sort of mara programming that ticker tape to see what is which which stories am i going to buy into which ones am i going to like like if it was on the computer what am i going to click like they're all advertisements lust over here, lust. Can I interest you in a 10-minute sexual fantasy? <laughs> or fear over here. Uh, global warming, it's happening. Climate change is real. The desert has never been this dry. 
So, so much of it is how do we relate to the talking mind, to the gang of monkeys, and who's in charge as we begin to have more insight through the mindfulness practice and concentration. And for me so much, and I know this is true for so many of us, it was the practices of loving kindness, the Brahmaviharas of compassion and appreciative joy and equanimity that really started to give voice and strengthen some of the other uh, monkeys, some of the other voices in the monkey mind. It feels like King Kong was sort of greed, hatred, and delusion was the King Kong kind of like king of the jungle in my mind. But then as I did metta every day for a few years, I think of this, uh, one of the other monkeys that I thought about was uh, Hanuman, the Hindu monkey god of devotion and wisdom and courage, love. And I thought of kind of as I did more loving kindness, as I trained the mind, as we train the mind and heart, we strengthen these other voices. And it's like, you know, it's always been there, loving kindness and compassion. It's always been there, but it was just so beaten down by the fear, by the hatred, by the judging mind. But then it gets brought up more to the front, more of a voice in the pack, more leadership in the mind itself, more dialogue coming from kindness rather than the hindrances more dialogue, more inner talk around forgiveness, around compassion. To really go way too far with this analogy for the monkeys, I was trying to think of other famous monkeys, King Kong, and, and King Kong kind of gets a bad rap because he's really a lover. But then, you know, he gets his heart broken and goes and eats some helicopters. Gets kind of pissed. Could happen to all of us. I was thinking of Curious George. What kind of Curious George uh, conversations have you been having? And Curious George could be actually quite good for a meditator, that kind of inquiry, curiosity. What is this? What's happening? What's it feel like, smell like, taste like? Is it pleasant? Is it unpleasant? What's the appropriate response? I spent years battling my mind with my mind. I think of this story that I heard somewhere, Buddhist story about how at some point, um, this is kind of one of those mythological mystical stories uh, that the Buddha was in the heaven realms in, in the realm of Brahma and uh, he was going to meet with Brahma but Brahma was out uh, doing some business or something like that and um, 
but the, the attendants said, Buddha, please help us. There's this little gnome uh, that has taken uh, Brahma's seat, has taken Brahma's chair, and he won't get out. And we keep yelling at him and saying, get off of you know, Brahma's chair. And every time we yell at him, he gets bigger. And he gets bigger, and he gets bigger. He said, but we figured you might know what to do. And so they called the Buddha in um, to talk to the, so for this story, let's say it's a monkey. It's just, you know, it starts as this little, tiny, fear, afraid monkey or whatever. And then the more you yell at it, the bigger it gets, the more you try to fight it, the larger and larger, and actually the more power it gets from your hatred, from your aversion, from your judgment the more you're strengthening those bad habits by fighting them with your bad habits. But the Buddha immediately knows what this out-of-control, overgrown gnome monkey needs is love. And he immediately starts complimenting and sending kindness and compassion and saying, I think you look great in that seat. It fits you just right. And I'm so glad to see you. And how's the family? Welcome back. And with each act of kindness and each act of love and each act of compassion, shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. And you know what I'm talking about, that our, our, our habits are just like that. And our inner talk is just like that when we... Uh, try to beat it down aggressively, it gets stronger. We're feeding aggression. But when we begin to dismantle those bad habits with love and kindness. So I was thinking on on retreat, kind of, there's so much emphasis on like, well, don't, don't think, just feel and just be in your body. But it's, it's kind of BS, isn't it? Because you're thinking anyways. But what is uh, kind of right, what is right speech on retreat? In a silent retreat, when you're talking to yourself anyways, what is wise and skillful and appropriate? Because there is wise and skillful and appropriate things to say to yourself throughout the day. There are appropriate things to have little interventions and conversations. Wes gave a great one this morning. He said, uh, sometimes you need to just say to your mind, not now, I'm meditating. That is an appropriate dialogue to have with yourself. That is right speech. turning towards loving kindness and saying the phrases, may I be at ease or may all beings be at ease. May I be free from suffering or may all beings be free from suffering. That is appropriate use of your internal talk. That is right speech on retreat internally. All of the Brahma Viharas, all of the reminders, sometimes we're using that internal talk, intentional internal talk, to investigate, to inquire. Is this pleasant? Is this unpleasant? Sometimes I even ask myself, what's the appropriate response? I'm suffering. What's causing this? Where's the clinging? Where's the craving? Where's the attachment? 
What's the appropriate response to this suffering? Is this call for letting go? Does this call for compassion? There's some inquiry, not too much, not thinking about it all day, but at times there's this internal dialogue that is wise and appropriate. The Thai forest monastic Sumedho, Ajahn Lungpur Sumedho, uh, has this simple phrase that he has been teaching about, was teaching about a lot, and it's this kind of mantra uh, to say to ourselves in practice, right now, it's like this. No matter what's happening, whether it's pleasant or it's unpleasant, whether you're having an ecstatic, blissed out meditation or you're just in deep sorrow, right now, it's like this. Saying that to yourself is right speech. Non-judgmental acknowledgement of what's happening. I was trying to think of some other ones. Actually, I'd like to, if any of the other teachers have some good ones that you'd like to throw out there, I'm totally open to some help of... Uh, other kind of what right speech things to, to, to say in your practice. Certainly the Brahma Vihara, certainly some acknowledgements of what's happening, some investigation. It's okay. It's just saying to yourself, it's okay. I like that one a lot. Thank you for your opinion, or sometimes I'll say, thanks for sharing coming from my 12-step background where if somebody says something really awful in a 12-step meeting, there'll be this kind of like, thanks for sharing. <laughs> and sometimes just saying that to yourself. Thanks for sharing. Thanks for your opinion. I've got a guy that's been practicing with me um, and he was recently talking about right speech and his practice is, is very challenged by the fact that he is a highly functioning autistic and has a real difficulty and he said he created so much suffering in, him, in his life around um, not communicating well and pushing people away and being unkind to people and pushing them away. He said, and as he started to try to practice right speech, he sort of figured out how to fake it. He said, because of the autism and the Asperger's stuff that he was going through, it just made it almost uh, impossible for, for him to be sincerely uh, kind of... But he said, I learned how to fake it, and then I could, and I saw what a change it had uh, as I've just pretended to be nice to people. As I just pretended to listen to people and to be patient and, uh, and to practice right speech. And this, uh, as Jack said the other night, uh, speech that's based on kindness, that's appropriately timed, um, that is uh, true and useful. He said, as I tried to do that with others, he said, I saw such great results people really responded. It really decreased the suffering in my life and in the life of the people around me. 
He said, but trying to do it to myself, I couldn't fake it. He said, so I thought, oh, that worked pretty well. So I'll try to fake it with myself and just kind of pretend. He said, but it just didn't work internally. He said it was only through real transformation, through the practice of loving kindness, of actually training my mind to be kind, through the repetition of the phrases, may I be at ease, may I be kind, may I be loving, may I meet myself and others with forgiveness. He said that gave me relief through the actual transformation, but not through pretending. That having been said, I, I personally don't think there's anything wrong with sort of fake it till you make it. Uh, if we wait until we're sincerely kind before we start acting kind, it might be too long. I'm not actually completely uh, sure about this. But my sense is that uh, as the Buddha began teaching, first he just taught the, the four truths and the eightfold path as we're talking about. And the primary meditations were these uh, mindfulness and compassion practices. And the Buddha's own experience was that through bringing mindfulness to pain, uh, he uncovered compassion. And compassion became his natural response of his enlightened capacity. And as he brought mindfulness to pleasure and saw the tendency to cling and crave and get attached, uh, the, the liberation brought him non-attachment. And kindness and compassion were byproducts of mindfulness. Sometimes in Buddhism we talk about, we create this false duality around wisdom and compassion. But it's really, it seems to be a false duality because it's only wisdom. Compassion is the appropriate response to pain. Compassion is the wise response to pain. It's not a whole separate thing. It is wisdom. And the Buddha experienced that directly. But as he went out and taught, it seems, and I don't know... Jack, one of these guys would know. Uh, it wasn't, it seems like years before he started teaching the Brahma Viharas. Do, do you know how many years? Because it didn't seem like it came in the Pali Canon right away. It's not in the Eightfold Path. He's saying pretty early. In the second factor? In the traditional lists? Okay. But the Metta Sutta itself, pretty early. Do you have a sense of old, old early? I don't know. But anyways, my, my uh, hypothesis is that... Um, the Metta Sutta came uh, in a, as a teaching for people when the Buddha started to see that just mindfulness by itself wasn't doing the trick and that people actually could use this practice of reciting these phrases, of training the mind intentionally towards kindness, of teaching the mind 
to be kind, to speak kindly with words. The training of the mind with the phrases, with words. I know for me, it uh, changed everything. And it changed the way that I speak to myself. And it changed who is running the pack of monkeys in my mind. And that it's not always greed, hatred, and delusion. They're still there. They're not gone completely. But they don't have the kind of power, the kind of voice. They're not out front as often as they were. And more and more often, the internal talk spontaneously is more gentle, more kind, more loving, quicker to suggest forgiveness, to suggest loving kindness. As you continue your retreat, I encourage you, I invite you to practice right speech towards yourself. Not to indulge too much in the talking but when it comes up when the unwise thoughts when the unkind dialogues come up uh, doing our best to replace them with wise talk with wise investigation and dialogue and statements saying to ourselves may I be at ease even with this May I meet this with compassion, with kindness, with forgiveness. Right now, it's like this. And sometimes saying to your mind, not now, I'm meditating. You can have that plan later. You can indulge in that Vipassana romance later. You can indulge in that vendetta later. Not now. Some of my thoughts about wise, skillful, and appropriate inner talk while practicing meditation. Let's sit for a moment before we end.
May each of our, one of us learn to meet ourselves with kindness, to respond with compassion, and to not take it so personal so often. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.